Belonging Together is brought to you by Do For One, a nonprofit that serves adults with developmental disabilities in New York City. People with disabilities are often segregated, denied personal agency over their lives, and exposed to social isolation. Do For One promotes stronger communities and richer lives by bringing people excluded from freely given support into healthy and lasting relationships. Across the city, in homes, restaurants, places of worship, art museums, bookstores, theaters, and parks, Do For One relationships are bringing new life to New York. We are bringing New York into people's lives. You're listening to an orientation of our work, guided by stories. I do have one other question. Well, I'm yeah. going to have more questions, but another question that I feel is pressing. That was my wife, Allie, and I'm Andrew. Together, we started and lead Do For One NYC. This is the story of how it all began. Jack and Tony were best friends and roommates since their early teens until Tony died in 2014. We'll take you behind the doors of the mental institutions where Jack and Tony meet and tell you a story of friendship that served as a guiding light in one of history's darkest times. How did my life intersect with theirs? And how did this experience change everything? I invited Jack and Allie on two separate occasions to help me tell this story and ask questions like this one. Just even as I'm, I'm listening and, and just really like, just being present with these stories, um, with Jack's story and, you know, getting to Tony's story, which I already know, it's heavy. How, do, how does that affect you and how do you, how do you manage that in, in terms of like allowing that to propel you forward? rather than to like freeze you in a place of not doing anything Mm -hmm. because it's so big. You said it's gonna help us remember what we're talking about. On on this? Uh Uh-huh. Is that okay? You can't see it. This is something that Tony taught me is that as I learned about his story and I heard it from him and I heard it through Jack and and others, I think initially I couldn't help but get caught up in our differences. Like, wow, I can't relate to someone who's been through so much trauma. How could I possibly have a relationship with him? But what Tony taught me is that although he, he had deep waters and although he went through a lot of pain, there was joy in there too. And when he and I could share that kind of joy together, we were both human together. That's how I do travel somewhere. Travel somewhere? Yeah. The heart, the human heart, um, needs the same thing, like love and acceptance and belonging. And I think the more I got to know Tony, the more I could see our similarities and the the differences of life experience and the difference of abilities and all that kind of stuff started to fade to the background. As opposed to looking at the problem in the abstract of like, wow, look at all these problems, let's fix them. It's more like, wow, Tony is my friend. That's your wife up there. Uh, yeah. See, when I see a couple, you you got the better of that deal, dude. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna deny that. <laughs> no. As we got set up for the interview, Jack's support worker sees a picture of my wife and gives me a compliment, sort of. So I originally set out to simply tell the story of my friendship with Tony and how he made a big impact on my life and has shaped the way I value friendship and even my faith. But after interviewing okay. Jack... So Jack, let's... I have a lot of questions. Yes, shoot, shoot. I hear you. We uncovered so much about Jack's friendship with Tony. Good morning. My name is John Tahan. I live in Manhattan. I live on 42nd Street. I'm over in three apartments. He lives in Manhattan on 42nd Street. He's a detail-oriented man, and so here he describes the various places he lived and the dates. Nine. I used to live on Fourth uh, Avenue on Fannin Highland. This was going to be one short episode, but the story about the pathway Jack and Tony create together to reach us all is too rich and surprising for that. That's why the story is divided into two episodes. This is part one. It all starts in Sunnyland, Illinois, and my pursuit of a music career. Here we go. I was raised in the heart of Illinois by my loving family. I went to church most Sundays with them. My love for 90s indie rock carried me through my teen angst. Any Weezer fans out there? In grade school, I was voted by students class clown, and so was voted by teachers and my parents to be held back in third grade. So while all my adoring fans moved up to the fourth grade, I was taking special reading classes and special ed and struggled with every subject except music, so I dove in. During my freshman and sophomore year of high school, my friend Nate and I would rent a four-track cassette recorder on the weekends and write as many songs as we could. That's what you've been listening to. And just in case you missed those lyrics, up here where I live, there's always kittens bringing cute little things in handmade baskets, made of little things for us to enjoy. Song title, Perfect Land. I know. You're wondering why I'm not famous, right? I worked odd jobs during this time, from Kmart to stocking shelves at Target to roofing houses. I quite literally had no idea what I was doing with my life. It seemed that more doors were closing than opening. All these frustrations resulted in my leaving the small town life to New York City in 2003. Sure, I tell people I moved to pursue my dream of becoming a famous music producer, but something completely unexpected happened that kept me here. We were talking a lot earlier. I know, I... Distracted? Okay. Looking at the kids and stuff? I didn't think it out. That's okay. Tony was born in New York City in 1956. 
Although his earliest memories of his mother was seeing her smoking on the balcony of their apartment, he'd say, she was like a chimney. He was also born with severe cerebral palsy, and they did what was common at the time and placed him in a mental institution at the age of six called Willowbrook State School on Staten Island. Despite the name and the promised outcomes of the institution, it became one of the most tragic efforts in the history of modern human services and remains in the shadows of our history today. This is Robert F. Kennedy visiting Willowbrook. And I think that particularly at Willowbrook that we have a situation that borders on uh, a snake pit and that the children live in filth. Uh, but, uh, many of our fellow Here's a clip from an expose on Willowbrook done by Gerardo Rivera. He famously surprised the facility as a reporter and exposed the horrendous conditions. There was one attendant for perhaps 50 severely and profoundly retarded children. Lying on the floor naked and smeared with their own feces, they were making a pitiful sound. A kind the kind of, of mournful wail that it's impossible for me to forget. This is what it looked like. This is what it sounded like. But how can I tell you about the smell? It smelled of filth. It smelled of disease. And it smelled of death. We've just seen something that's probably the most horrible thing I've ever seen in my life. Is that typical of ward life? Uh, yes, there are 5,300 patients at Willowbrook, which is the largest institution for the mentally retarded in the world. Uh, the ones that we saw were the most uh, severely and profoundly retarded. And so it was built for 4,000 people, but by the mid-60s, there were well over 5,000 residents, making it the largest mental institution in the world. And so just to give you a timeline, Robert F. Kennedy visits in 1965, calling for an overhaul of the institution. Gerardo Rivera, the clip you just heard, was released in 1972, which sparked public outcry. Like, how is it legal for there to be, you know, one attendant per 50 people and for... And so there was, a, there was just a, a wrongful mindset that, that created this idea that, that children could be sent away to these large institutions to be educated by right. specially trained people where once they're done, they would be able to walk and talk and cope with society... The problem is that it was happening behind the walls of the institution, and the general public was unaware of what was happening. And so while staff knew, general public did not know. Even parents of the children that lived at Willowbrook did not know what was really going on. And, um, and so I think there was just a lack of accountability from the general public. That, right. As a matter of fact, there's, there, are, there are staff who tried to take issue with the treatment of the institution, and they were fired because they tried to voice their opinions about what was going on. My heart really goes out to the staff, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. It, it just, actually, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to really care, to really, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Like, who knows? Maybe it was some people starting off their career or people that have been in the field for a while that really wanted to make a difference and help. And, you know, right. they're at risk of getting fired. Right. And, you know, if they leave, then one less person that cares is there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I really can't imagine. So Jack was born about a year before Tony. I asked Jack to recall that far back in his own life. I do not far back, yeah. Uh, first of all, I was a baby. I, I was in my family house from one year old to six years old. And then when I was six years old, my father had to be over there gouverneur. When he was six years old, his father had to make a very difficult decision. A decision he didn't want to have to make. It's important to understand that there weren't any other options. At that time, it was common for families to be promised the help of institutions, to educate and train their children up for society. Parents were overwhelmed and had to make very difficult decisions. My father had to work. His father had to work. There's nobody going to be home. Nobody was going to be home. Everybody had to go to school. And uh, and then um, I was so... Disappointed and upset, you know. I, Jack was disappointed and upset. I know what the people gonna do to me. I know what's gonna happen. What the people gonna? I I know what's gonna happen to me, you know. He was afraid of what was going to happen. And I said, Oh man, I'm afraid of that. So basically, like, would you say that Jack just there was just no other option for him if his dad had to work, nobody was home to take care of him. I'm assuming. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the public school or whatever probably would not have accommodations for him. There's just no other option. Right, right. And when I talked to Jack's sister, she 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 spelled that out pretty clearly that there was, in spite of the fact that Jack's father did not want Jack to have to go away, the professionals at that time, you know, doctors, what have you, people that might supposedly know a little bit more that would that would guide families were pressuring them to send them to Willowbrook. So just to give you an example of the kinds of pressures parents faced, Willie Mae Goodman, mother of Margaret, had a similar situation. Here in an interview on local Staten Island TV, she tells her story. Well, in the beginning, um, when Margaret was a baby, was born, um, she started having seizures. And I didn't know what seizures were. So finally we took her to um, Presbyterian Hospital when she was four months old. Mm-hmm. And um, they told me she was having um, seizures. And uh, he told me that Marguerite would never, she wouldn't live to get two years old and that she would never be able to, to give love and understanding and thing like that. And so I told her, well, if she didn't, I have enough for her to, <laughs> the love for her to, to help her. Willie Mae Goodman became a leader in this movement. Still, she insists that her title is simply Mother. In that same spirit of Willie Mae Goodman, Jack's family is doing everything they can. 
Jack recalls his father coming to take him home every weekend. My father used to come visit me. He'd come visit me every weekend and come take me home. Even if it meant carrying him home, literally. I, I, and then, well, not only that, his car broke down. He used to take me on the subway. He tied me, he tied me into the subway by himself when I was a baby. Okay, I've never been on a train before. I've been on it the fourth time. So they bring me home and stay there for the weekend. Families who stick together are a lifeline for people with mental disabilities. When your car breaks down, you carry your child home on the subway. Jack, Jack sounds like he had a really great dad. Yeah. A really caring dad. Yeah. It's awesome. Still, families were unaware of the conditions. People had nothing to do all day, every day. There was no education and very little, if any, interactions from people. Endless life of misery and filth. One doctor in the Willowbrook expose said, What you see, it makes you think it's hopeless that they can't be trained. But they only look this way because they haven't had any opportunity for training. If you or I were left to sit on a ward surrounded by people with impairments, we would probably start looking like this too. My pursuits of becoming a famous music producer wasn't working out so well. This was around 2003 to 2005, about two years before meeting Tony and Jack. I was living in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I got to work with some great artists, but my work with them consisted of making coffee and making sure no one entered the control room, including myself. Yeah, I was an intern. After working as an usher on Broadway, making lattes at Starbucks, I became restless and dissatisfied with my experiences in New York. And yet I stayed here as if I was waiting for something. What's that? Yeah, I know. You want to hear how Tony and Jack meet. So due to the overcrowding of Willowbrook, around 200 of Willowbrook's most severely and multiply handicapped children were moved to empty wards in Gouverneur Hospital on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. This was around 1965 after Robert F. Kennedy visited. This was also where Willie Mae Goodman's child ended up as well. In fact, they didn't even tell her when or where they moved her until she showed up at Willowbrook and found out she was gone. And my husband and I went to Willowbrook, and they told us that she wasn't there, and we actually were worshiping. Somehow, and at some point along the way, Tony get mixed in with this crowd, and this is where they meet. I might have been Gouverneur, yeah. In Gouverneur? Yeah. Yeah. We used to hang out in the hallway. They met in the hallway. When I met him, I was, I, let me tell you, I was 15 years old, and he was 15. One year older. 
Jack was 16, Tony, 15. He put him in the, in the tower. He rolled him to the tower, put him in the tower. And he said, uh, and then he used to be in the wheelchair, and he put himself in the wheelchair. He used to hang out in the hallway. And, 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 and um, I, I used to go with him. I, I used to go with him in the hallway, too. Yeah? Yeah. We took an elevator, we go, we go, we go downstairs and hang out for a little while. They'd take an elevator downstairs and hang out for a little while. Imagine two young teens in this environment making the most of their surroundings. They also watched a lot of TV. He goes on. We used to watch TV. We used to watch um, a lot of different shows, cartoons, a movie, uh, Lost in Space, and Power Rangers, and everything. Did you just say Power Rangers? Yeah, And by everything, he meant... We used to watch um, uh, Who's the Boy? We used to watch <laughs> One Day of a Time. And we used to watch... I love Lucy. And you know what his favorite show? The Beverly Hillbillies. The Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, he likes that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's so watch that way back. In case you missed it, his favorite show was The Beverly Hillbillies. Jack told me about Tony's mother visiting every Sunday to bring him comic books. And I met his mother, and I met his mother's boyfriend. But he never married. This was a memory that never came up in my conversations with Tony, but leave it to Jack. His mother used to be getting every, every, uh, every time he used to write him a comic book. And, um, they have a birthday party for him, and his brother comes to him, and then every, every birthday party every year. I'm sure Tony loved those visits. But those visits stopped. And Tony didn't know why. It was never explained to him. And then? And then, when he heard that, his mother passed away. And he didn't let him know what happened. His sister, nobody didn't let Tony know nothing. He was upset. And nobody let him know anything. No one knew. Yeah, no one told him. Tony's mother died. Years went by before you heard the news. And from this point on, Tony loses touch with his family. This was a very difficult dynamic because Tony had to witness Jack visiting his family. Because I go, because I go home a lot. Tony don't. Because jealous. Because, let me tell you something. When I go home, with my family. It's too bad when I'm not there. Yeah. When he been putting his life into disappointment so much. Jack said, I'd feel bad when I'm not there. When he feels in his life, he was disappointed so much. This was the turning point for him, as it is for many people with disabilities. The heartbreaking question that many parents ask is, what happens to my child with disabilities when I'm gone? As crucial as family is, it takes more than just relying on a faithful few. The help of friends and the surrounding community is so important, but if you're in a tightly controlled setting, one where by design you are being protected from society and society is being protected from you, 
How could you possibly meet anyone and grow as a person in the ways that many who experience ordinary privileges do? I'll let that question hang out there for you. For now, let's continue the story. Jack did everything he could to be helpful, including teaching Tony how to talk. I, I love this, and because I've known this for a while, I've known that Jack taught Tony how to talk. But I still am curious, how? How do you teach somebody how to talk? I want him to say something that I got teaching him how to do it. I teach him how to talk. It definitely like sparks imagination, like to to right. to to kind of think like what what did that look like? A lot of it was him being around Jack, who did talk, and so you know you you kind of learn by hearing. He he spoke up for himself and on behalf of Tony as well, and I think a part of what Jack is saying when he says I taught him how to talk is, it's like come on Tony, speak up. Got it. Because I used to be around them in that dynamic, I would I would be asking Tony questions, and then and then Jack would be in the background and he would chime in. He's like, "Come on, Tony, answer him. He asked you a question." Not only did he teach him how to talk, I teach him not to be afraid, but he taught him not to be afraid. And I tell him that I say, I want you to look up, look up your head and say something and fight for yourself. How what you want to say? Get that pumpkin out of your chest and say something. I tell him that. Don't let nobody push you down, he would say. Don't let nobody push you down. I told Jack that what I really admired about him is that in spite of his own challenges, he was looking out for Tony. When I asked how he was able to do that, he went on about how Tony was there for him. Yes. You were there for Tony. Yes. Well, how, how did you do that? How did I do that? I tell you, I got powerful to do that. I taught them. He taught me a lot of good things. He taught me a lot about, um, about a lot of people. So what, what exactly is Jack saying that Tony taught him? I think what Jack is saying there is just the the delightful conversations that they were able to have, you know, and what Jack says there is, you know, um, he would talk to me about a lot of people and a lot of things, um, uh, you know, places. It was either things that Tony experienced or maybe things that he would like to experience. He's talking about uh, having fun. He's talking about playing games. He's talking about everything. All that good things about talking uh, about all about his life. All about his life. What he used to do, what he going to do. It just really goes to show how important friendship and relationships are. It's our lifeline. Despite their friendship and their looking out for one another, things were hard. Here, Jack tells a story about a staff mistreating them. The staff that was there, his attitude is saying ugly. And um, he said to me, he said, why did you, why did you tell anybody what I tell you? Why did you say something like that? 
What did, what did the staff say to him? Jack would voice his opinions, so they confronted him, asking him to stop talking. But Jack wouldn't keep his mouth closed. Then the staff said, I'm going to beat you. He told me I'm going to beat somebody up. The beast taunt, they hit Tony in the mouth and hit me in the head. Because that talk a lot. They get angry about what I said. I said, look, if you don't like that idea, I'm going to call to see if I can move you somewhere. He hit Jack over the head and Tony in the mouth. That's what Jack what? said. Yeah. And keep in mind, they were in a ward where Tony and Jack were the only people who could actually talk. Yeah. So the fact that Jack was talk, not only talking, but speaking up for his, his wishes sure. and his issues, so that was a what, threat. Like, in the midst of this... How did the staff get away? Did they get away with that? Jack is a tried-and-true New Yorker. He's what the late Barry Gray described. If Jack woke up and the city was underwater, he'd swim. Despite all that surrounded him, Jack didn't stop defending Tony and himself. Did they get away with it? Jack called the supervisor. So he called the supervisor. I said, can you, can you move to my eye I don't want I don't want somebody there no more. Just move out of here and leave me at home. And I told the guy, is what down there? Is the big head uh, going there? I said, I said, what happened? I said, I said, look, get him out of there. I don't want him there no more. He hit me and told me, I said, you can't do that. So. He's fired him. Don't come back. So they fired the staff. He never came back. I asked Jack if he had anything else he'd like to say about his experience as a gouverneur. And again, the no-nonsense kind of guy he is, he moves us on. I'm glad I'm not there no more. I'm glad I'm not there no more. I don't want to think about the gouverneur no more. I want, I want to think about new things. And yes, we'll move on and talk about new things. But you have to know how they get out. So I told you before that somehow Tony and Jack got mixed in with people who were moved to Gouverneur Hospital. This group was sadly considered to be in a vegetative state. And I told you that Jack taught Tony how to talk. Well, get this. Because they could talk, there was a social worker that noticed them both and realized they didn't belong in the ward and helped them move out of there. My upbringing is a familiar one, a boy, coming of age. My family, my friends, my experiences along the way shaped who I am today. Willowbrook stole that kind of experience from thousands of people. It's tragic, and it's infuriating. And yet, it wasn't that long ago. Have things gotten better? Have they stayed the same? What is it that we can do? Stick with us, and we'll continue the conversation. As part one comes to a close, let me say that I'm incredibly grateful for Jack's time and his willingness to share these memories with us. As we spent the day together, we took breaks from the heavy stuff and revisited something we love to do together. Sing a song, 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 sing a song
He'd also love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about what I say? And how do you feel? Um, what all the information, what the idea about, okay? Right. John Callahan, 1954. His email is johncallahan54 at gmail.com. We'll make that email available wherever you're listening. In the next episode, you'll learn about the deinstitutionalization movement and the struggle for reform. The whole thing is completely out of control. You'll learn about where Jack and Tony go next, and finally, how do Allie and I meet them? I'll talk to you soon. In New York City alone, there are over 900,000 people with some kind of disability. Negative perceptions, segregation, loneliness, and neglect are common experiences for many. I think before even thinking about ramps and elevators, I think just an openness to invite a person with a disability somewhere, I think that speaks accessibility in greater volumes than having a ramp legally somewhere just for the sake of it. You know, because we can have a ramp or an elevator, but if there's never anyone to use it, then there's really no point. Do For One promotes stronger communities and richer lives by bringing people excluded from freely given support into healthy and lasting relationships. Visit doforone.org to learn more.